My name is Janice, and I'm an alcoholic. Good morning, everybody. Um, God, my heart is just racing, which means we're either going to have a lot of fun or I'm going to hyperventilate and pass out. <laughs> um, I hear you've already heard I'm not a morning person. I walked in, everybody goes, oh, you're not a morning person. I'm like, hello? Yeah, what were you talking about while I was getting ready? Um, but I'm not. Um, and also, I don't like to eat before I give a talk. Um, I'm always afraid I'll throw up. Um, somebody asked me yesterday if I was nervous. I said, well, of course I'm nervous. I get nervous. You know what I mean? And because uh, it's, I mean, seriously, my heart's racing. And the reason I'm sitting up here just kind of BSing with you guys is I don't have a clue what we're going to talk about today. I t- depend totally on the creator to work through me. And he's either going to do it or he's not. If he doesn't, it's going to be an early day. Uh, we can all go home. I've actually had that. Oh, it's been one of my greatest fears, and it happened to me uh, in front of about 2,200 people in Dallas. I'm giving this talk, and uh, I'm looking over, and they call him the voice of the conference, and, and I'm talking, and I'm thinking, I am so sick of hearing your voice, Janice. You know, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking I'm sick of this story. I'm sick of talking. This is sickening. And then I looked over to my left, and the voice was falling asleep. And I thought, see, he's sick of hearing it, too. And then I looked out in the audience, and I was convinced that all 2,246 people were falling asleep. Uh, and you want to talk about fear. And all of a sudden, I just shut down. And uh, so maybe I'm over my biggest fear. I'd like to start. So I just sort of visit a little bit, and we'll see if the big guy takes off here. Um, first off, what about them speakers? Huh? Bob was great, Lynn, Jerry. So it was just wonderful. Thank you so very much. I'm sorry I didn't hear the old-timers on Friday. I came in, and Jennifer, she's a kick in the pants. Uh, she is. I mean, they couldn't hook me up with anybody better. I get to watch and go, oh, yes. And, uh, and you don't, you're not going to know this, because my buddy Roger over here who's taping says that sometimes he has to wear asbestos headphones when I speak, okay? Um but I look at Jennifer, and, and I've actually slowed down through the years, which you may not believe when I'm done. Um, anybody have uh, Sandra's burritos? Boy, were they the best? Saved my life, weren't they? You know. And this has just been a ton of fun. Last night I said to somebody, "Gosh, everybody here is so nice," you know. And they said, "Janice, this is Minnesota, right?" <laughs> so you have. You've been really good to me. I've met a lot of nice people. And Bob, who invited me, we had a lot of fun conversations on the phone, and. So I've had a good time. So thanks for having me here. Um, i got to warn you about something. Are there any Al-Anons out there? Don't be afraid. Raise them high. Raise them high. Good, good, good. Welcome to Al-Anons. It's really important to have Al-Anons here. Al-Anons a really, really important fellowship. And uh, I don't know if any of you, I, I was here a couple of years ago. It was funny. I was in the airport and I thought, God, this looks familiar. And we're driving around town. I'm thinking, this looks familiar. And I remembered I had been at Gopher State two years ago. And um, so those of you that were there, I only have one joke I take with me on the road. So that you that were there already heard this joke, but I don't think most of you heard me there. So, um, But it's an Al-Anon joke. And uh, so I wanted to be sure there's some Al-Anons present so we can really enjoy it. <laughs> and it's a good Al-Anon joke. Do you know how many Al-Anons it takes to screw in a light bulb? None. 
They just detach and let it screw itself. <laughs> and good for them. I have an Al-Anon sponsor. I'll just say that right up front. But this is a talk about Alcoholics Anonymous. So I do. I welcome Al-Anons. Um, my story, <clears throat> and talking with you, our book says that our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we're like now. Uh, I've checked my watch. I will warn you that when I'm coming to a close, I speed up because I'm afraid I'm going to miss something here, okay? So hold on tight. <laughs> we talk about the wind velocity when I give a talk. Um, that could come on a couple of different levels, I guess. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, I'm a big book thumper. I'm not going to lie to you. If you don't want to hear about the big book and my experience through the big book and the 12 steps, and this talk is not for you. Um, it's what I was raised on. It's what I know. It's my experience. It's how I sponsor. It's how I was sponsored. Uh, it tells us that it's a basic text. And a textbook, what do we do with a textbook? We study it, right? It's what we do in school. We study a textbook. So I'm a student of the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm also a believer in our singleness of purpose. Um, I came in time. You're going to hear probably some talk about drugs when I talk. And the reason I'm going to talk about that was because I come from that culture where I did a lot of drugs. But I'll tell you right now, I'm not a drug addict. And um, and I'll probably talk about that a little bit too. So uh, anyway, just to tell you a little bit, because it says there's stories disclosed in a general way what we used to be like. And I also introduce myself. I will tell you I've been sober since May 3rd of 1981. Okay. And I guarantee you when you hear my story, you'll know I didn't have a thing to do with it. <laughs> and uh but also my home group is the Happy Way Group in Denver. We're at 3159 South Broadway. We have nine meetings a week. Actually, we have ten. We started a beginner's meeting on Saturday. You're welcome to come join us. I love my group. I used to say it's the best group in town. And my sponsor told me I couldn't say that anymore because it may not be the truth. <laughs> I had to think about that one for a while, but I try not to say that anymore. I know I've called him on occasion before I gave a talk and said, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? He says, well, honey, why don't you try the truth for a change? You know, I'll just get up and tell him the truth. So when you're in Denver, come see us at the Happy Way Group. Uh, we uh, talk about the first 164 pages. You can be pretty well assured our topic will come out of the first 164 pages. We do big book workshops. We have one going right now. They last sometimes six to eight months where we go through the book and do the steps together and bring in people from other groups and stuff. So I like my group a lot, even though it's not the best group in town anymore. Um, I get corrected a lot. That's what good sponsorship is about. Um, I like that. I like sponsors that are direct. I also like to tell you that I'm a real alcoholic. I am. And that's the good news of the day. I woke up this morning. You guys, there's a lot of new people here. I've had an opportunity to talk to a lot of new people. And uh, and, and I needed that. That uh, AA happens when we sit down one-on-one -on -one with each other. That's where AA happens. Conventions are fun and potlucks are fun and all that stuff is a lot of fun. But AA happens one-on-one -on -one sitting down at the table talking about that book and working through the steps together to have a spiritual experience as it's promised in that book. That's AA. And we talk about, also in the book, it mentions the fellowship of the spirit. And I used to think that meant, you know, like potlucks and conventions and fellowship, you know, hoo-ha, hoo-ha. And um, did you like that? Is that a new word? Hoo-ha. And, uh, but it, what it is, is that a fellowship in the spirit to me today is having shared in a common experience with somebody through these 12 steps and had a similar uh, spiritual experience. I was talking with Chris outside yesterday and I was kind of running out of energy. Things were quiet, if you can imagine me running out of energy. 
and he and I started talking, and we know similar people, similar sponsorship, similar experience in the steps, and got all pumped up. That's fellowship of the spirit, because I met a fellow traveler, and you all know those too. How do I know I'm a real alcoholic? had nothing to do with my consequences. When I talked to you today, I didn't have bad checks. I didn't use bad credit cards. I didn't go to jail. I didn't get arrested. None of that stuff happened to me. It's a pretty boring story. Okay? But you know what I did do? Once I started to drink alcohol, I couldn't control the amount I was going to consume, and I couldn't predict what was going to happen. I couldn't stop or moderate, and that's alcoholism. Unfortunately, sometimes we get up here, and we talk about our consequences. You know, and if it were me sitting out the audience, I'm thinking, if I haven't had those consequences, maybe I'm not an alcoholic. You know, I remember I did go through treatment December 30th of 1979, and I'd listen to these people talking, and I remember saying to the doctor, i got five more years of drinking left in me. I haven't done any of that stuff. You know, and he said, well, here, let me show you your liver enzyme test, and we can talk about it. He said, I'm not real sure where you put that scotch, but uh, your liver isn't doing very good. But, see, I listened to those stories. So if you don't have those stories, that doesn't mean you're not an alcoholic. And the reason I love the book is because the book tells me what an alcoholic is. I drank alcoholically from the get-go, now that I know what alcoholism is. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about how I drank and see if you recognize yourself. I want you to come with me. My background doesn't have to be similar to yours. My upbringing doesn't have to be similar. None of that. What it's about for me is what happens once I put alcohol in my body. I was 15 years old when I had my first drink. Uh, my sister, it was her wedding, and uh, we were at a dinner afterwards or something, and um, I remember I was sitting at a table, and I can see it like it happened yesterday. It's just clear as a bell. I can see myself sitting there with my brother and his girlfriend, and they had these, you know, the white tablecloth on the little, we were in the bar before dinner started, and, you know, those little wire back chairs, the heart-shaped chairs, were sitting in those, you know, the little wooden seats, and he went off to get some drinks, and I was wearing a very ugly dress. My mother thought it was lovely. It was olive green. It was disgusting. I had this, like, halo thing on my head. Little did they know <laughs> what was coming. Um, so anyway, <laughs> my brother went off to get drinks, and he brought me a drink. And I can see it. You know those bar glasses about this size? You know that shape. You know those simple. And he brought it to me, and it was kind of a cloudy drink. And um, it was a Tom Collins. You know how Tom Collins got that cloudy look? And um, I remember taking that drink, and I drank it, and oh, my God, that thing hit about here, and I was like, oh, woo, it was a wonderful experience. It's like everything inside of me just loosened up instantly. I loved it. I liked the warmth of it, just instant attachment, me and alcohol. I can. It's just like it happened yesterday. And I did what any good budding alcoholic does. What did I do? I said, I want another one of those, Right? Well, they should have known right then that we had big, big problems coming. I said, I tried to pick up the priest that night that married my sister. <laughs> they, my, my family should have known we are in for the long haul on this one. Really a cute little Irish guy. He's actually from Ireland, and I was leaning over singing him little Irish love songs. and You know, I mean, I just came alive. I completely changed who I was. See, I didn't know that I needed to be changed or wanted to be changed, but alcohol just changed me, and I liked that change. It was a solution. My first drink was a spiritual experience, and I bet some of yours were too, because it was an instant change. It talks about that change that happens, and that's what alcohol did for me. It made me feel okay. It made me fit in my skin, and I didn't even know before that that I didn't. Now, I'm not telling you that I was a normal kid. I remember walking home from school one day at about eight years old, and we had just bought a new house, and uh, I'm walking home, and the thought in my head was, I'm going to get home, 
everybody would have moved and not told me where they went. Okay? This is not healthy thinking. Something's not right. My life was never quite comfortable, but that isn't really my alcoholism. See, because I used to think, see, I got into childhood issues and all that, and I've done all that. I've gotten outside help here because I need it. There's some of us that are sicker than others, you know, and um, and I'm one of them. It took me several years to figure that out because I thought it was you all, but it was really me. And when I found it out, I was so disappointed. I thought I was better than you. And uh, so, but when I went, um, if and, and the way I describe this is, let's say I live next door to this gal. We're the same age. And she had the same kind of upbringing. Her mom was an alcoholic and there was abuse in the house and there was all that stuff going on. And it was ugly. And it was a war zone. But I go out and drink and I liked what alcohol did for me because I have that thing in me that's different than other people that can drink successfully. She goes out and drinks and doesn't like it. So my childhood does not make me an alcoholic. It's got me some relief because I have that little thing in me. But there are actually people who have terrible problems that drink alcohol don't become alcoholic. So I don't blame my alcoholism on anything, but I've got that thing in me that kind of snaps because I've got the physical malady. The something in me clicks when I put alcohol in my body, and it doesn't click with other people. My sister-in-law who lives in Albuquerque, (laughs) she had some uh, surgery done, and they gave her Valium. And she called me because she had taken a couple according to the prescription, and she hated it. She's like, I'm miserable. I can't stand this feeling. I feel so out of control. I said, well, then mail them up here, honey. (laughs) I chew mints because otherwise I'll go dry and pass out. Um, (laughs) I do. My mouth gets dry. I have this terrible fear of choking. You can't have a date with me unless you know how to do the Heimlich maneuver. (laughs) I do. And I write on it and I do all this stuff and I just like, I'm going to choke to death. So I chew on mints. My teeth fall out, but I chew on mints. Um... That same sister-in-law has a couple glasses of wine. She's an embarrassment. What she does on a couple glasses of wine, she goes, I just, oh, I just can't take this. I need to go home. You know, so needless to say, she and I never drank together. (laughs) But anyway, so I'm at the wedding. I drink. I have this experience with alcohol. I have my second drink. I try to pick up the priest. Okay? So we're on the road. I will tell you this. Um... I had a brother who was killed in a car accident when I was about 13. He was 15 years old. My dad was a doctor. His best friend was a psychiatrist. When our family went through that, we didn't come together at all. We just kind of spread to all corners of the house. And the way that my family dealt with that, and my father and his good friend, was everybody got medicated. Uh, so when I was 13, I was on things like Stelazine, Ellaville, and Dalmain. Okay? I was a high-strung kind of gal. And I needed to sleep at night. I had nightmares, you know, so they just give her this. And my mom was an alcoholic. Um, and they gave her second alls. Take the edge off a little bit, you know. And um, so anyway, that's kind of, I was loaded from the time I was 13 until I was 30, one way or another. And my mom, at 18 years old, my mom uh, died of active alcoholism and drug addiction when uh, she was about 47 years old. She was three or four years younger than me as I am today. She just dropped dead in the living room. And um, we never really talked about alcoholism. I mean, they didn't talk about alcoholism in my house in 68 and 69. And she would try to commit suicide periodically. She was really an unhappy lady. And today, because I understand alcoholism a little bit, I, I understand. You know, and she just, there was no solution. And, and I think about it because I was at a meeting at York Street. Any of you ever been to Denver and gone to famous York Street Club? Oh, you got to come. It's beautiful. And... um there was this gal celebrating three or four years of sobriety, and her mother was there with 15. 
And I thought, oh, wow, wouldn't that have been neat? You know, but it just didn't work out that way. I was raised in an alcoholic home. And it looked really good on the outside. Everything looked good. Nice cars, nice house, nice clothes. Everything looked pretty good. Inside, it was a nightmare. But you know what? That didn't make me an alcoholic. Left home at 18. I lived on the border near Mexico. We lived in El Paso, Texas. And um, so I could go to Juarez and drink for 35 cents a drink. It was just wonderful. And um, I would drink things like daiquiris and sweet things, you know. And, you know, they make them in like those milkshake containers. And they pour it into a nice dainty glass. And they go to take away like the container. And I would say, just leave that here. I paid for it. <laughs> so, and thinking always I wanted to drink like a lady, I thought I ordered ladies' drinks but I don't think I ever found out what that was. Because I had that physical malady, when I would start to drink, I just drank. I drank till I got sick. I just drank. I drank screwdrivers for a while as a young person and got so sick. I could not have orange juice for like 10 or 12 years. Just the smell of it would put me on my knees. And I remember I came home kind of loaded one night, and I'm throwing up, and I remember my mother saying to me, well, what are you drinking, girl? I said, bourbon and 7-Up. <laughs> and she said... Um, it's that sweet stuff that's making you sick. <laughs> what you need to do is knock off that sweet stuff. You need to learn to drink scotch. I thought, okay, I could do that. So I learned to drink scotch. And I was also a household, we did a lot of entertaining. I mean, my dad was a doctor, we had a lot of friends, there was a lot of parties, and that's what you did was you drank. So I didn't think anything was wrong with that. Okay, 18 years old, mom dies, I go, I have a job. I'm working at a radio station. I come in with a hangover one day, and this disc jockey comes up to me and says, my God, you just look awful. You know, what happened? I said, well, I'm really hungover. He said, well, I've got something here that will make you feel better. I said, oh, boy, I like anything that makes me feel better. And he gave me my first amphetamine. I can see that little capsule just like it was yesterday because I was going to have another spiritual experience. For those of you who don't know, amphetamines are things like diet pills. <laughs> That's what I like to call them, or speed. And um, so I had my first uh, hit of speed. What a miraculous drug that is. And it was a spiritual experience because you know what happened? The hangover went away. I was clear as a bell. And I could work really fast and do a lot of things and that alcohol wasn't bothering me at all. So what happened was, oh, I still had that psychiatrist. He liked me. My dad died then when I was about 21. So, you know, I was a miserable child. Um... I remember going to him at one point and saying, you know, I'm just so depressed. My mother's dead, my brother, my father. I mean, who wouldn't be depressed if you were me? And I mean, I'm a full-blown alcoholic by this time. And I said, I just can't seem to get out of bed. Life has no meaning. I just, I have no energy. And he looked at me and he said, well, what do you think you need? Well, <laughs> now that you asked, some Dexamil 30 milligrams would be really nice. And he wrote me the prescription. And I had a prescription for Valium because I'm pretty high strung. So I took Valium and Speed and, and I was always trying to control everything. I have some friends that are recovered heroin addicts and they said, you should have just shot heroin. You wouldn't have had to go through all that trouble, you know? For some of you who may not have used drugs, I'm sorry if that offends you, but that's part of my background and there's, and there's a purpose to this talk, believe it or not. So anyway, this became my pattern. From the time I was 18 to I was 28, I'd get up in the morning with a hangover, I'd take speed, I'd go to work, and I'd work very fast and very efficiently. Okay? Come 5 o'clock, we would go to the bar after work for a couple of drinks. 
right? That was my full intention, happy hour. And I'd start drinking, and that thing would click in that clicks in with alcoholism. So I'd keep drinking because i got to shoot pool and dance on the tables and stuff. And I'd be coming down, and I'd be coming down from the speed, and I'd go, well, you know, I can't keep drinking without speed, so I have to take some more speed, right? So I can dance and shoot pool and stay up all night and have a good time. And then come 2 o'clock in the morning, the bar's getting ready to close, and I'm high as a kite. So I'd have to take some Valium so I could go to sleep. You know, got to take the edge off, get up in the morning, do it again, do it again, do it again for 10 years. Man, I was pooped when I got here. I was terrified I'd never be able to clean house again. You know, know, I'm the kind that does it with a toothbrush. It's like, yes, time to clean house. You know, you smoked a cigarette and I ripped the ashtray away and cleaned it, you know. And I'd lay in bed the rest of my life, and look what I ended up being. Is this terrifying? Can you see me on speed? <laughs> so that lasted from 18 to 28. And, and and I always said, you know, this is what alcoholism is. If you're confused at all, I used to say to my uh, honey of mine, there were more than one, but hey, honey. I said, sweetie, I'm going to be home at 7 o'clock after work. I worked for the phone company. always had good jobs, drove new cars, you know. I, I did okay, and I used to actually sit down and pay my bills before I drank. See, because my family was dead, I knew that if I didn't pay my bills, I'd have no place to live, and I wasn't into it. And I didn't think I was the kind of girl that somebody would pay my rent. It just never occurred to me to ask somebody to do that. And, uh, or maybe I'd pay the price. But anyway, uh, so um, I would say, honey, I'll be home at 7 o'clock. We're going to have dinner. I was a pretty good cook. He'd say, great. And I meant it with every fiber of my being when I said it. I'm going to be home at 7. That sounds logical, doesn't it? And I'd get to the bar and I'd start drinking. And pretty soon, you know, you have happy hour. Then you have another little happy hour. You've got to bang them down so happy hour doesn't end. And uh, then I'm, that thing clicks in. That phenomenon of craving that we talk about in the book, that clicks in. And pretty soon I'm drinking. I don't even know what time it is. And I get a call at the bar at 9 o'clock. Honey, where are you? Well, I'm drinking. Yeah, you know, I'm over at the bar. I thought you said you'd be home at 7. Well, I'm sorry. I'll be home at 11. Right? Lock it off. They keep drinking and midnight phone rings. Leave me alone. I'm with my friends. Why do you always bug me when I'm with my friends? I couldn't get home at 7 o'clock. For Al-Anons that don't understand alcoholism, that's what it is. I really meant to be home at 7. I really cared about this guy. And I did. I just couldn't get there. And I didn't know why I couldn't get there. And then I got to a point where I would become angry with you because you were trying to make me get there. And I couldn't do it. I would see people look at me like, why does she behave this way? And I'd look at them and say, it's none of your business how I behave. And if all, everybody in your family died, you behave this way too. Right? I mean, who wouldn't drink? Oh, and by the way, I drink because it's a sunny day. <laughs> don't you drink because it's a sunny day? And I only drink with people who drink like me. You don't drink with people. I mean, do you know what it's like to say, I'll be home at 7? And you're sitting at the table and somebody stands up and goes, i got to go because I told my wife I'd be home at 7. I don't understand that. I can't do it. That's alcoholism. I just I, I couldn't get where I needed to be. And yet I kept a job and all that, and I'm sure it's because of the drugs and stuff. But that's what alcoholism is. And I drank a lot. I drank Johnny Walker Red on the rocks, and I would change my drinks. At 10 o'clock, I started drinking uh, Kahlua on the rocks because I was convinced that it was full of caffeine. <laughs> and it would sober me up. And what it really gave me were the runs the next day. I was sick as a dog, okay? But I would, like, play all these games about what pill to take at what time. So, you know, it's like, ah, no wonder I'm so tired, you know? 
So I changed drinks. I was telling Jerry earlier that I, not too long ago, I was looking in the newspaper and there was an ad for liquor in there and I thought, hey, I'll just see what Johnny Walker is these days. Oh my God. Oh my God, it's a lot of money. I said to a friend of mine, I said, well, hell, I couldn't even afford to drink anymore. And he said, oh, Janice, you just change brands. You know what Jerry said? You just get a smaller place to live. It's the truth. They're absolutely right. I thought I was drinking really expensive wine, you know. I, did you ever buy those wine racks? Because I always want to have a wine rack and have beautiful wine glasses because I thought I was very uh, sophisticated. Thank you. And uh, see, I hear everything. That should make you very nervous. Um, my sponsees love it. Um, so I always wanted a wine rack filled with wine and stuff. And I'd go out and start accumulating wine and I just couldn't keep it in the rack. You know, I mean, it would just be empty, and I think, I don't understand why I can't get this full, so I have friends over, I can crack open a bottle of wine. I used to carry a corkscrew in my purse. <laughs> you never knew when you'd run into a good bottle of wine, right? And you know what? I'm going to tell you this flat out. I had a great time drinking. I did. People all go, oh, it was so horrible. It was not horrible. I was a kick in the pants. I was the greatest date you ever met. You know, and I, anyway, I thought so, and um, and I loved everything that came with it. I loved the smell of bars, and as I continued to drink, kind of the dirtier the better. You know, I ended up in bars that smelled like urinals. You know, I'm sure my mother was very proud of me. You know, did you ever go back to one of those bars during the day to find your glasses and go, oh, my God, am I drinking in here? But I liked the bar atmosphere. I liked shooting pool. I liked dancing. I liked all of it, and I had a good time for a long time. But you know what? Something happened. And I don't know when it happened, and I don't know what the day was, and it's irrelevant. I don't know how old I was. I don't know if it was in the middle of a drink. I don't know what happened, but one day it turned on me. It turned ugly. And it turned ugly hard. And pretty soon, what I thought was a luxury was an absolute necessity. I remember going to work at the phone company, having a cup of coffee on break, and my hand shaking so bad I couldn't get the cup to my mouth. That's why I took Valium. I was in my early 20s. The book tells us women, women... Much quicker than men. Okay? And there's a reason for that. And uh, I was devastated by my alcoholism. I weighed about, you know, 32 pounds. The doctor quit giving me uh, speed. I kept saying, diet pills. I need those diet pills. I'm so fat, you know. And uh, that made them sound better. But that's a little bit about what my alcoholism looked like. And how did it end? It ended in Denver, Colorado. And uh, who was I talking with it? How did they get here or something? Uh a gentleman in a hospitality suite, and I'm sorry, I don't remember your name, but he's from Wyoming. And uh, are you in the room? The guy from Wyoming. Anyway, I said, well, how'd you get to Minneapolis? He said, I'm not really sure. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that. You know? Well, when'd you get here? August 22nd. And then he's on the 24th. I was in a treatment center. I understand that. How'd you get here? Well, I don't know. <laughs> but here I am, waiting for the snow. Well, in Denver, in El Paso, I was sitting on a bar stool with a girlfriend of mine from the phone company. She had a crush on this friend of mine who was living in Denver. We're sitting there drinking, and, you know, we have great ideas. What did somebody say? Don't think and drink, you know, at the same time. Was that Jerry? And uh, I loved it. But anyway, so we're sitting there drinking, and we got a stellar idea. She says, I want to go see him. I said, well, that just sounds like a heck of an idea. So we're all dressed up. We walk down the airport, pull out those big old fat credit cards, charge a ticket, and go to Denver for the weekend. That's how I got here. You know, and I loved it. I loved Denver. It's very different. Anybody ever been to El Paso? It's cool. Uh, 
They paint their rocks green in the summer because it's too hot to grow grass, okay? <laughs> they paint everything green so it looks like grass. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure it has redeeming qualities today, but I grew up there. I was a drunk. Everybody knew me. It was terrible. I had no place to hide. But I fell in love with Denver. They had parks, and people seemed to not work up there. And um, they're always riding bicycles, and they're in the parks. There's always somebody in the parks. And I just decided if I went to Denver, I'd be a very healthy person. You know, it's that John Denver, Rocky Mountain High kind of thing. And they're riding around. The guys were gorgeous, you know, with the plaid shirts and those, you know, hiking boots and women in braids and plaid shirts, too. And I thought, that's what's wrong with me. I'm living in the wrong city. It's too hot to wear a plaid shirt up there down in El Paso. So I moved in about six weeks, gave up my job at the phone company and moved up there. And uh, I just fell in love with it. And I got some plaid shirts and I put my skinny little hair in braids and found myself a mountain man and moved to the mountains. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, I was. And they still call me Mrs. Jeremiah Johnson because I don't like going out in the snow. <laughs> People can't figure out why I'm in Denver. When it begins to snow, they call me and say, do you need any smokes or food? You know, you could be there for a whole day. Uh, I, got, I got four studded snow tires, you know, not two on a front-wheel drive. I got to have four, you know, and two in the trunk. You know, Mrs. Jeremiah Johnson, I'm really into it. Um, yeah, I get teased a lot. But uh, but I went up there and I said, you know what? And also I love cowboys. I had a little problem with cowboys in El Paso. And I said, I've got to quit living this life and behaving this way. Because I'm going to tell you something. We all did things that we were not raised to do. Our mothers and daddies or grandparents who ever raised us did not raise us to behave the way we did behind alcohol and drugs. That's just fact. You can look at any way you want. And some of us didn't have great upbringing, but truth of the matter is, we know. And I was behaving in a way that I was not raised to do. And I will tell you flat out, I talk about it when I speak. I've done everything my mother told me not to do. And I was doing that in El Paso. And I couldn't stop it. I couldn't control it because when I started to drink, I didn't know what I was going to do. I couldn't guarantee it. I swear I wasn't going to do it, and I'd do it anyway. So I got up here with this good-looking mountain man, and I decided I wasn't going to drink or do drugs anymore. We moved up in the mountains, and it was beautiful up there. It really was. I couldn't leave, but it was nice. And uh, and I, I probably stayed sober a couple of weeks. Started feeling better. Things were okay. But actually, then I had to drive into town for something and stopped at this bar. I think we were going to eat lunch or whatever it was. And all of a sudden, there was the pool table and the jukebox and the country western music and the boys in their boots and all that kind of stuff, you know. And it was just like, oh, my God. You know, I mean, what can a glass of wine do? You know, really. It's not a bottle. And I was off and running again. I was off and running bad. And I thought, well, I can't keep drinking like this without any medication. i got to have my speed. See, because I won't be able to drink much. I'll be passing out. And I didn't have any connections in Denver. And I'm not I'm not interested in doing that stuff on the streets. You know, I'm still kind of a doctor's kid and a snob. And I thought, no, you don't get those kind of drugs. You call your pharmacist. Back in El Paso, and I did. And he used to mail me my medication, and I'd mail him a check. And I was doing speed and drinking before I knew it. Bad. And those last two years were a nightmare for me. I started having long-term blackouts. Aren't they fun? Take a drink, party all night, wake up two or three days later and not know where you've been. Those were cute. And uh, terrifying because I didn't know where I'd been, who I'd been with, what I'd been doing, or how I got where I was. So I anyway, it ended. I had a, I had a boss who uh, 12-stepped me. I was hungover one day, and he brought me uh, the 40 questions, and I answered them honestly. The best way 12-step somebody is make sure they're hurting really bad. And give them that list. And I went through and I had like 19 out of 40 yes. And I couldn't kid myself anymore. I knew that there was a problem with alcohol. Even then I didn't know what alcoholism was. But I knew I had a problem with alcohol and it was ruining my life. 
went into treatment, stayed clean and sober for about a year, went back out. Uh, after a year, what happened was I, I didn't go to meetings. For new people, I didn't go to those meetings. I didn't like those people. I think it was like what Jerry was describing. It was like prayer meetings. They would hug and act stupid and hold hands and pray. and You know what I mean? And they're just so glad to see each other. And I said, I went to prayer meetings before. I know what this is about, and I don't want a lot to do with it. So I didn't go to a lot of meetings. And if I did, I'd arrive late and leave early. Okay? Because I want you touching me. All right? Don't be touching me. Don't be doing that stupid religious thing. Okay? And uh <laughs> it's the truth. And so after a year, what happened? I got loaded. I ended up hanging out with old friends who were so excited I wasn't drinking. And uh, I ended up doing cocaine. Well, see, and I didn't have a problem with cocaine. I had a problem with Speed, Valium, and Johnny Walker Red on the Rocks and Drambuie or whatever. But cocaine had never been a problem. And I talk about this because I hear stories and I talk to people who use NAA. Okay? And I'm going to tell you, this is what I learned. Is that I didn't have a problem with that and I was going to another fellowship. And they would say, is there anybody here for the first or second or third time since the last time they used? Raise their hand. And I'd look around the room to see who was raising their hand. Because I was convinced I wasn't using because it wasn't a drug that I was used to. I like that. Is that insidiousness? And I'm getting high every weekend. You know, snorting it off the plates, being a crazy girl. Started out a little bit on Friday, and pretty soon Friday turned into Saturday morning. Next thing I know, it's three-day wows, and I can't get to work. And, you know, I'm like, wild. And I'm looking around the room to see who's raising their hand. And I had to get it that we don't smoke dope on Sunday here. I'm very serious about that. AA also stands for absolute abstinence. You know, and I don't get to take the edge off. And if you look at me, I need to take the edge off, okay? <laughs> if anybody deserves to take the edge off, it's me. But we don't be doing that. We're either sober or we're not. So anyway, I came here through another fellowship because I was convinced I was a drug addict because I did so many drugs. Now it's a good fellowship. It's where I found sobriety. And all we had in that fellowship was the big book at the time because it was so many years ago. Like 79, 80, skinny 81, because I was going there while I was high. But um, I was pre- they were pretty nice about it. But anyway, um, <laughs> what are they going to do, kick me out? We only had five members. Anyway, <laughs> and I'm entertaining. Um, but... Um, so we worked on the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, in that fellowship. So I worked the steps through that. But I want to talk about coming through you know, through another fellowship. See, because I was convinced I was an alcoholic. And what I just talked to you about was my first step. And, I mean, I was convinced I was a drug addict. And it, and it was like, because I did all these drugs. You know, and AA was full of those old coots, you know, and older people. And they didn't do drugs, and they weren't cool. And so I could go to this other fellowship and we could talk about drugs and drug addiction. And they said, a drug's a drug's a drug's a drug. doesn't matter. Let well, me tell you something. I found out after a period of sobriety, that's not the truth. A drug is not a drug is not a drug is not a drug. Each one has its own manifestations. And what I found out was I'm in the big book Alcoholics Anonymous because I have good sponsorship. Because I was with somebody who was properly armed with facts about himself. I found out what my problem was. When I talk about the first step, see, if I don't know what my problem is, I may not have a spiritual experience in the 12 steps as it's promised because I may be living a lie. If I'm not telling the truth in my first step, how can God remove something or how can I be powerless over something I don't know I'm powerless over? I had almost five years of sobriety when I got the sponsor that I have today. And I was in conflict. So I'm thinking I'm a drug addict. I've worked out of the big book and all this other stuff. And I'm just crazy at five years. I'm just not feeling quite right. 
And I remember hearing this person speak. And, uh, boy, my God, their message was clear. Just about exactly what to do, right out of the book, everything. And in my heart, I knew I needed to talk to this person. Anyway, this person I hooked up. Now my sponsor, been my sponsor 15 years, and he tells me even to this day I wasn't properly 12-step till I had five or six years of sobriety. I knew I had a problem with alcohol, I knew I had a problem with drugs, but I thought I was a drug addict. But nobody had sat down with me or I hadn't been in that environment where they talked to me in the doctor's opinion to find out exactly what my problem was. So when we agreed to meet, and I talked about this in the sponsorship thing, he we agreed to meet every Wednesday at 3 o'clock and start on the very first page, the cover page of the big book Alcoholics Anonymous where it talks about being recovered. And he used that word recovered. And I thought, boy, this guy's an arrogant pig, okay? <laughs> he thinks you can be recovered. I'm in recovery. So we started talking about being recovered. I said, well, how can you be recovered? He said, well, because I am. I said, well, how do you know? Well, when you are. I said, well, am I? He says, I don't know. Are you? I says, well, I don't know. How will I know? When I am. When you are. I stand before you today, a recovered alcoholic on this day. Because you showed me the way. But talked about being recovered. And I remember saying to this person, am I an alcoholic or drug addict? He said, honey, I don't have a clue what you are. I don't know. Little did he realize how crazy I was. He probably should have gotten rid of me then. But uh, he said, why don't you go home and pray about it, and I'm sure God will tell you what you are. He said, but in the meantime, let's just read this book. <clears throat> so we'd start reading that book and he'd start telling me about his experiences with drinking and I'd start talking about mine and we'd talk about that stuff about how I wanted to get home at 7 and I couldn't we'd talk about that stuff about waking up in the morning and swearing I'd never ever do it again ever and minute right to my toes and a few few hours later I'm drunk he talked about missing a ship I talked about not being able to get to work we talked about what happened once I started to drink. And we looked in the, in the doctor's opinion, and, and I found this thing about the phenomenon of craving. At the end of our visit, I said, well, what do you think now? Am I an alcoholic or am I an addict? And he'd say, I don't know. I don't have a clue what you are. Why don't you go and pray about it? They're not really a lot of fun, those guys. <clears throat> and um, if you just give me a quick answer, we can get on down the road with this. You know what I mean? took about three or four weeks. And then I saw myself in that book. And I realized I was an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. I suffer with the phenomenon of craving. When I go to start drinking, something clicks in me, and I'm going to keep drinking, no matter what the consequences. And with the firmest thought of not wanting to drink again, I have the obsession of the mind, which is that somehow, some way, the next drink is going to be different. That if I just make it Kahlua, if I just use the right drug with it, if I just wait until 5 o'clock, if I could just get home by 7, somehow it's going to be different. And the thing about that is I forget that just the day before, it wasn't different. I forget that four weeks before, I couldn't find my car. I forget that uh, last week, I hit two parked cars and left the scene of the accident. Now, that may not be alcoholism, but I was drinking and that's what happened. See, our consequences are a result of my alcoholism. They're not my alcoholism. I don't run into parked cars today. It's amazing. And I hit two and left. See, I don't screw around with the police. See, you people go to jail. I just get my drugs and my booze and my ID, and I just walk away. Then you turn yourself in two or three days later, and it's officer, I'm so sorry. I just knew in Denver, and I was scared. You know what he said to me? Honey, 
If that happens again, leave a note. I said, I'll do that. <laughs> That's what women get away with. All right, honey, I'll leave you a note next time. See you, babe. Do you love it? Okay, so what am I? I'm an alcoholic who takes drugs to enhance my alcohol experience. You've got to know what you are. If you don't know what you are, find somebody who knows what they are and find out what you are because it will save your life. That's the truth. And I'm not probably the sweetest kind of sponsor you ever met in your whole life. I'm going to tell you a story about finding out who and what you are. I have a girlfriend I've been sponsoring for 15 or 16 years. And uh, I wasn't always real big on this. You know, I just thought, drugs a drug, a drug, everything's cool. You know, as long as you're working the steps, life will be great. But this person was going to a lot of different meetings. A-A-C-A-N-A, nanny, nanny, boo-boo, you know, and people were asking her, to, you know, nanny, nanny, boo-boo, all the meetings. And, uh, but would get very uncomfortable in a closed A meeting. Been through the steps a number of times with me and also with my sponsor. And some things weren't changing. And as a rule, I won't take you back through those steps again if I've done that with you. I may hear your fifth step, but I won't start from the beginning with you once we've done that. Because once we've done that, we've done that. Go do that with somebody else. And, uh, meaning a new person. Don't be hanging out with old timers and keep trying to do it with them. Get a new person and do it with them. But anyway, um, so she asked me to take her those steps again. And I prayed about it. And I said, honey, I'd be glad to do that. But here are the rules and regs this time. And you need to think about it. Because we need to get clear on your first step. And the reason you need to get clear on your first step is you sponsor a lot of women. And if you're not clear for yourself, then they don't have to be clear. And then that grows exponentially. Because then they'll sponsor five, we'll sponsor five, and nobody held their feet to the fire about what are you. Right? So I said, so go home and pray about it because I'm not joking about this. You know, because she knew she had never, ever made a commitment or or truly committed to who and what she was. So uh, she came back. She said, I'm ready to go for it. And I said, great, because you've been doing this thing for years. Right? Being everybody's friend, being social, doing all this stuff. Right? So we sat in that first step for four or five weeks. Well, ultimately what came out of it, at one point she looked at me and she said, I don't think I'm in anything. I think I'll just go use. I said, see ya. You know, because she got really mad. <laughs> Because it's not comfortable to have to get to the truth if after that many years you've never done that. All right? And also it may separate you from some meetings you've been going to because you don't belong in those closed meetings. So she and I talked. You know what? She doesn't have a phenomenon craving when it comes to alcohol. She's a pure cocaine addict. Pure. That's what she does. And she's terrified. What am I going to do? I have all these friends in AA. I said, well, go to open meetings. But you also need to go to a fellowship and carry the message there because there are women there who need you. They need to hear your story. Very active now in CA. Worked on the state convention, holds a service position, and the group does all the deal. Carrying the message. So I'm kind of big on that. And the reason I'm big on it was because somebody showed me the way. Somebody showed me what the truth was. My position isn't terribly popular, and I'm aware of that. <laughs> okay? Because we all want to come together in meetings and just love each other and hope, help you get over Oreos and, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, But see, if you don't do Oreos the way I do Oreos, you are not going to have a clue what I'm talking about. All right? You, you're not going to have a clue about how I can eat them till I get sick, you know, watching Geraldo or something. So the thing about alcoholism is, is if we're in here talking about other stuff in an AA meeting, there's an alcoholic sitting there don't know what you're talking about. So we need to talk about things that we talk about in other places. There's a place for everybody. And I believe that. And I don't think anybody comes to Alcoholics Anonymous by mistake. I like that. But I must be a well-informed, 
properly armed with facts about myself, kind of alcoholic, that helps people get where they need to go if they don't belong there. Because AA has people there that aren't even alcoholic. And I don't care. That's none of my business. And I'm not talking to that person today. If one person in this room who's a real alcoholic, here's my message and the hope for recovery, I've done my job coming to Minnesota. So we talked about the first step. My God, I can do the first step for days. Now is when we speed up. <laughs> Sit back, hold on tight. What's the second step? What's insanity? Everybody thinks insanity is out here. My relationships are insane. My business is insane. My checkbook is insane. Everything's insane. I'm, I'm insane. You know what insanity is? Think of the next drink's going to be different. That's what's insanity. <clears throat> that has to be removed. That's change. It says, so you see, we think that alcoholism centers in the mind. How could anybody in their right mind think the next drink is going to be different with the history that we've got? In drinking. It's like it's not even there. Have you ever wanted to put your hand on a hot stove? I have. When it's real red, I go, I wonder what that's like. I do. I'm a little bizarre. <clears throat> but I think that. I can't remember. That's insanity. Insanity is waking up saying, I'll never do it again, and doing it anyway. Waking up swearing, I'll never do it again. Convinced I'll never do it again. And the weirdest thing happens is I've changed my mind. It just changes. That's what I did. That's insanity. It says I need a new mind. It tells me this thinking has got to change. I've got to recreate my life. It's got to be recreated because this thing isn't working right. Well, why isn't it working right? Because it's twisted. I got that strange mental twist. I have no effective mental defense against the first drink. One of the things I can talk about from the podium today is God. I call it the creator. I think it covers a lot of us. You know? The creator. In the beginning when I was newly sober or working with people, I wouldn't talk about God because I was afraid it would scare the poop out of them. You don't want to scare the poop out of those drunks like they've never been anywhere, you know. And um, But I'd say, we'd be talking about how we're going to do this or everything. I'd say, yeah, and then there's a God. <clears throat> and they go, what? Well, we're going to talk about God a little bit. You didn't want to talk about that because you're afraid you'd lose them. Well, today if it scares you, see ya. Okay? Because if I had the power to stop drinking, I would have done it. I would have done it. If I could drink successfully today, do you think I would be hanging out in Minneapolis at an AA meeting? I don't think so. You know how they talk about they're going to make a drug so we don't get high from whatever it is we're taking? You go, why bother? Why would anybody who likes to do cocaine take a pill that doesn't get them high? I mean, can you imagine you'd slit your wrist? Right? You're sitting there like spending all this money going, I don't get it. But the second step is, that to me is the insanity. Unmanageability of the first step, right here. This is what's unmanageable. This is unmanageable. This head of mine. It needs to be managed. And the creator's going to manage it because I'm going to get a new mind. Well, how do I do that? Well, first I have to be convinced that a life run on self-will can hardly be a success. Prior to that, I have to say, you know, am I willing to believe or do I now believe there's a power greater than myself that's going to solve my problem? Well, that doesn't mean you got to know who it is. We all want to be these intellectuals and sit around and talk about what God is and what God isn't. You know what? It's really none of your business. The reason you take step two is it follows step one. That's the truth. It's a numerical order for boneheads, okay? And that's the way it works. These are not new ideas. These are ideas through the ages and every religion you can ever touch going back thousands of years. Boneheads get them in numerical order, okay? 
stick to the numbers. So if you're convinced that you're without power, then it says, well, lack of power, that's our dilemma. We had to find a power greater than ourselves, but how are we to do that? You know what it says? That's exactly what this book is about. To enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which is going to solve your problem. That is exactly what the book is about. It's about nothing else. It's about finding that power for you. Period. And in the fourth or first edition, it says it's going to tell you precisely how to do that. Not creatively, not the way you want, not when you feel like it, but precisely what to do. Ready? It talks about this being a suggested program. What does that mean? Have anybody look at you and go, you can't tell me what to do. Those are just suggestions. I'm like, this relationship is done. But um, <laughs> by a suggested program, this is how I interpret that. That means there's this suggested program and there may be four or five others. Religion, psychiatry, dancing in the streets, rebirthing, whatever it is. And I'm not opposed to any of those. Seriously, I don't, I'm not. But this one worked for me. I did the religion thing. I did the psychiatry thing, okay? This one worked for me. So if I choose this suggested program, they're in a suggestion in the book after I agree to do it. There isn't. It does not say work the even numbers when you feel like it. It doesn't say that. Not anywhere I've read. It doesn't say, well, if your men's get a little uncomfortable, you can quit. It doesn't say that. And it says be sure to keep that deep, dark, dirty stuff to yourself, okay? Because you don't want anybody knowing what it is. They're in a suggestion in the book. It actually tells us how we're going to get drunk, doesn't it? In resentment, when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit, the insanity of return, and we drink. have alcohol returns, we drink again. Sexual behavior. If we continue to participate in behavior that harms others, we're going to drink again. That's our experience. It tells us so. This step. If we fail, if we leave out this important step, we may not get over drinking. Ninth step. Remember, we said we'd go to any victories, to any length for victory over alcohol. If we fail to perfect and enlarge our spiritual lives through work and self-sacrifice for others, we will not survive the tough times ahead. Says that. We're going to drink again. That's what it means. That's very clear. It doesn't say, well, take it easy your first three or four years and hang out and, you know, have some relationships and make you crazy and, you know, doesn't say that. It says if you want to be recovered from active alcoholism, which is I don't suffer with an active alcoholic mind. I did not wake up this morning thinking about Johnny Walker Red, okay? I didn't. Then there are things that you gotta do. And that's where I come from in this, in this, in this program. It's how I was raised. It doesn't tell me, and, 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 so when somebody looks at you and says, you can't tell me this, these are suggestions, you have to say, honey, you're either willing to go to any lengths or you're not. Half measures availed us nothing. We kind of just read through that in the fifth chapter. Half measures availed us nothing. You don't get a half. You don't get an eighth. You don't get a sixteenth. You get nothing. But if you're as desperately alcoholic as I was, and as desperate when I came in here, see, I got the gift of desperation, and I hope each and every one of you who's a real alcoholic has that gift of desperation, then I don't get to screw around with this. See, because I need a new mind. And I didn't like the idea of God. And also in the second step in We Agnostics, it says, do we want to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the misery of our intolerable situation, or do we want to live a life based on spiritual principles? Well, alcoholics are the only ones faced with that choice that will look at each other and go, I think I need to think about it. That's a pretty big order. Right? 
Well, if you're as desperately sick as I was, there is no choice. There's no figuring out these stats. That's not our job. Our job is to do it. Recovery. Alcoholics Anonymous program is a program of action. Get up and get on it. Don't be sitting around thinking about it. And if you're sitting around thinking about it, you better go help somebody else. When I came in, the sponsor I have today said, all those little signs up on the board are really neat, aren't they? You know, live and let live. Live but for the grace of God. You know, and he said, they're wonderful. He said, but there's one sign that is not for you, sweetheart. I said, what's that? Think, think, think. Okay? Don't even go there. You need to work, work, work. Right? We talk about how we deserve things here. I deserve this. I deserve a new car. I deserve this. I deserve a big fat diamond. I deserve this. My sponsor assures me that I'm the luckiest woman in the world because I don't get what I deserve. (laughs) Do inventory. People want to do a six and seven step like workshop on it to review their assets and liabilities. It's not your assets that are going to kill you. You don't need to worry about them. Okay? It isn't. It's not your assets. It's my liabilities. And this is a spiritual way of life. They talk about, I remember somebody made a comment to me last night about how far I'd come because I'm doing a Sunday morning meeting, saying it's a spiritual meeting. I'm usually a Friday kickoff, yell and scream kind of girl. And I said, and I thought about that, and I said, it's not a spiritual meeting. We've adopted a spiritual way of life. Cleaning your toilets is a spiritual act. That's a fact. There's no meeting more spiritual than any other. There's no moment in life more spiritual than any other. If we've adopted, have you ever heard people say, well, that spiritual part of this deal? Well, honey, there is no spiritual part. We're living in the life of the Spirit. It says that we're going to be rocketed into the fourth dimension. Well, what do you think the fourth dimension is? I, of course, thought that it was cavorting with celestial beings on faraway galaxies. (laughs) Don't you think? Right? You know, you just, yes, and, and I'm kind of out there. I'll talk to you a little bit about my spiritual stuff because I've done it all here, okay? <laughs> it is not that. And if you have that experience while you're here, enjoy it. It won't last. <laughs> it won't keep you sober tomorrow if you have it today. Um, fourth dimension is a new mind. It's a perspective. Have you ever been, like, you're in a situation at work and you can't seem to handle this situation and... All of a sudden, you've been through the steps, you've done what you've been asked to do, and a situation presents itself, and you handle it completely different. Or you're sitting in somebody's house, and all of a sudden, you see a a, um, centerpiece, and you go, wow, how long have you had that? And they go, five years, (laughs) right? You've been to their house a lot. That is a fourth dimension experience, a new perspective, awareness. You see something the way you've not seen it before. You've had a shift in consciousness. I am incapable of creating that experience on my own. The Creator does that for me by me working through the steps. That's what happens. See, because self manifested in a hundred ways, endless list, is what stands between me and the Creator who keeps me sober. You see, if God stands between me and the next drink, i got to get rid of the stuff that's standing between me and God. That's why it talks about an inventory that if, when I'm harboring feelings, I shut myself off from the sunlight of the Spirit because I'm busy doing me. You know what I mean? And he can't get through because he gets through to me on 10 and 11 and visits with me there. But if I'm full of stuff, you know, those marbles that run in your head, it doesn't work. So I've been given a plan on how to write that stuff out and how to look at the truth and how to find out where I was wrong and go make amends. And after you make amends, it feels pretty good, doesn't it? Even some of the ugliest you have to make. 
All of a sudden your head's cleared up and you can feel peace and ease. The whole purpose of what we do is to have a relationship with the Creator who can talk to us in 10 and 11 and give us direction on how to live our lives with a new mind. Now, if anybody tells you something different than that, I don't know. But it took me years to get it figured out. I was really disappointed when I found out this thing was about God or the Spirit or whatever that is. And you don't have to have my God. You might not like the big guy. We have a very special relationship. You don't, and you can't have him anyway. Go get your own. Right? And it says the spiritual world is roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive or forbidding to all who earnestly seek. He comes to each and every one of us. It doesn't say you've got to figure it out first to be able to do this. It says be willing to do it and great things will come to pass. Just be willing to step out there, allow yourself to be open, sweep away prejudice a little bit, and it says that your God's going to come to you. But we sit around and debate it and try to figure it out. We take three, do you know why? Follows two on the numerical scale. Four follows three. Is it a pleasant thing to do? No, but it is a gift. We talk about it as a chore. I first time through the steps, I just didn't care. I didn't want to drink. So maybe you're not as seriously alcoholic as I am. I look at people who want to do it and I go, you know what, maybe you're not a drunk. I say that to people. And sometimes they're not. Because they don't have to do it. I've gone to my sponsor and said, why do I have to do this? Mary, Sue, and Joe are doing this, that, and the other, and I don't get to do that. And -and so-and-so's doing this. Why can't I go do that? I'm a whining son of a gun. And he says to me, honey, you a real alcoholic? I go, yeah. He says, it doesn't matter what anybody else is doing because you got to do this. And that's the deal. I've also gone to them because people would come into meetings and, oh, my sponsor's having me do these old things and meditating things and dancing things and things. And I listen and I'm like, well, my sponsor doesn't tell me I do those things. So I went to him once and I said, you know what, how come you never give me tricks to do? <laughs> I said, everybody comes in, they're getting like tricks and I kind of feel like I'm getting left behind. He says, you mean, why don't I tell you to meditate 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes at night? I said, yeah, I like that kind of trick. And he says, honey, because I know you. You would, and you'd do it, and you'd get really good at it, and then you'd start thinking you had something to do with it. Instead of the creator bringing it to me. I'm like, what a smart aleck, you know? Why me, why me, why me? I go to him, why me, why, 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 where's mine? He says, your question isn't why, your question is what can I do? Action program, gratitude. What do we think gratitude is? Do we have gratitude meetings around Thanksgiving? Huh? Oh, I'm so grateful. Gratitude's an action word. Gratitude's an action word. I am grateful. I'm a thankful woman. But you know how I show my gratitude? You go out and talk to a drunk. Gratitude isn't sitting around feeling good. It isn't sitting around being appreciative necessarily. You need to appreciate what you got. I'm not dismissing it. But what I'm saying is, if you're sitting around waiting for a good feeling, you're missing the boat. Because our feelings are going to fool us sometimes, okay? Gratitude is this program in action. You're grateful? You go talk to another drunk. You go give somebody a ride to a meeting. That's gratitude. Love? Love's an action word. It's how we treat each other, not how we feel about each other. Because if that feeling slips away, you're going to think you don't love them anymore, aren't you? Huh? And then you're going to go, I'm... 
need a divorce. Love is what we do. It's an action word. Faith is the do-it-anyway word. Right? You sit around, you're scared to go do something. Right? And you're scared, you're waiting for a bucket of faith to land on the front door so you can get out there and do it. Right? Uh, you're going to be growing a beard. <laughs> yeah, it's the do-it-anyway word. And we were given a word for the do-it-anyway word, and that word is courage. Go out anyway. That's how I find out about my God in action. Get out there with God in action. And take these steps out there. Take this stuff out there. But don't sit around waiting for a good feeling to come because you're going to be a very lonely person. That's not where it happens. Am I done, Roger? Has it been enough? Okay. Well, we were talking about steps, and I just realized, I mean, God said to me, there is no way, honey, no matter how fast you talk, we're getting from 3 to 12. So the whole purpose is to develop a relationship with God, because it says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result, not a result, the, which is assured that we're going to have one if we do what's prescribed. Number one, you got to know who and what you are before you can have that experience. You can't be saying you're an alcoholic if you're an addict. You can't be doing that. So go find somebody who will help you figure that out. And I believe in that very deeply. And it tells me in 10 and 11, see, that insanity thing about thinking the next drink is okay, right? Somehow it's going to be different, different bar, different person, different cowboy, different life, you know? All of a sudden, that changes. And I'm a recovered alcoholic. Do you know when sanity returns? Ten steps. By now, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. We're going to recoil from it like from a hot flame. We'll be placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. It will just come. We're not going to be interested in liquor. That sanity will have returned. Do you know how far it is between step two and step ten? Oh, baby, you better get to work. <laughs> but it's assured in step ten that that will happen. It's at the bottom of the page, right after the instructions on how to do a ten step. Why do we do a ten step? Because we've already learned how to take inventory, so we continue to take personal inventory. Continue to do that. Why? To get the garbage and the marbles out of the head so I continue to hear the voice of God who directs me in my daily life. Am I very good at listening to the voice of God? Uh-huh. Do I do everything it says? Uh-uh. I'm pretty good. But it says we've got to practice, practice, practice. It says because now we're going to be able to trust our thinking. We're going to be able to trust our thinking. It says that. Even in Bill's story, right after he had worked the steps. I was to test my thinking by the new God consciousness within. Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. I was to pause when doubtful or agitated, asking for the proper thought or action as God would have me to meet whatever it is he asked me to do. That isn't quite how it goes, but it's close. And so, but it's about pausing and, and hearing the voice, the intuitive. How many of you heard my corn story at, um, what in the world was that? Thank you. Go for See? No brains. Did a lot of speed. I remember I went to my sponsor once and said, I can't remember stuff. I just, it's driving me crazy. I can't remember anything. He says, honey, as much speed as you did, you're lucky to have a brain. Okay? So just be joyous for what you've got. I tell a story about hearing the voice of God. Do you hear the voice of God? People say to me, Janice, how do you get these messages? I got up this morning and did my 11th step, you know. And in the middle of my 11th step, I got a message to call my sponsor eat. One of them. And I thought it was for me. So she could tell me how great it was I was going to give a talk or something, you know, and how much she loved me. 
Turned out she got another driving ticket yesterday, and so she probably won't have a license soon. And uh, and God gave her to me because I think she's just like I was. Okay, she's like, were you ever really like whacked out, high strung, can't quit moving? I went, oh God, yes. But in my eleventh step, I got that message to call her. Do you get messages? Good. A lot of people don't get messages, or they think they don't. I have a friend that used to come up to me and say, "How come you get all the messages and I don't get any?" I said, "Cause you're not listening." And you listen for your message and find out what it is. And it's practice, practice, practice. Because God will speak to each and every one of us in our very own way. Right? How he speaks to me may not be how he speaks to you. So how do you practice this? Well, I was over at my sponsor's house. And we were on that paragraph in Bill's story. I can see it on the right-hand side of the page. Where to test my thinking even is in italics. Anything in italics is very important in that book. Um, I was to test my thinking. And my sponsor said, do not. Take anything in this program at face value until you have done it. Until it has become your experience. Don't just assume this and tell my story. Right? Because I said it yesterday. This is experience, strength, and hope and not theory, strength, and hope. I don't want to hear your theories. I want to hear your experience. And I think you want to hear my experience. Everything I talked to you about up here today, I've done. Don't be telling me what you think it ought to be. Because I don't do good with that. So... He said, test your thinking. I said, well, how do you do that? To ask for, you know, a message. He says, I'll tell you what I used to do. He said, I I test it with everything. you got to know it in every facet of your life. And he says, like, one day I had to go to the grocery store and buy bread, and I couldn't decide what bread to buy. Really, that's what I said. Oh, no. I'm sitting there looking at this guy. He's pretty well-respected, nice guy. Got You know, works the steps, real familiar with the traditions. And I'm listening to him, and I'm thinking, this guy's a bonehead, Okay. And uh, he said, so, you know, I prayed about the bread, and I got a little message, and I knew what bread to buy. And I thought, okay, well, this has been a really good visit. You know, thanks for sharing. You know, you know how those old boys are. And so uh, I'm driving home thinking about it, thinking, oh, man, if you can't figure out what bread to buy, who needs a God? Um, well, I still haven't had to stop at the grocery store on the way home. And for some reason, I was buying frozen corn. Do not ask me why I was buying frozen corn. I don't like frozen corn. It's not the point of the story. Um, and I'm going down the frozen food aisle, and I'm really in a quandary about corn because I don't know anything about it. And they had two kinds of corn. They had Green Giant and Orida. So I'm walking down to get corn, and I looked in, and I thought, well, I wonder what kind of frozen corn is not as bad as the other. And I looked, and all of a sudden I remember my conversation with my sponsor. And I went, <laughs> Well, that's this cute. Right? So I went, all right, God, what kind of corn should I buy? And I'm laughing at myself, right? I mean, I'm not saying it out loud. I'm a little nuts, you know, but I'm having this conversation. And um, I thought, oh, this is ridiculous. So I picked up the green giant, kind of put it under my arm. I'm walking down the aisle, and I'm about mm, three-quarters of the way down the aisle, and all of a sudden, from somewhere inside of me, I hear, or either. Oh, it stopped me dead in my track. You just sort of stopped and looked around. You wonder if anybody else heard it. They come over and sing. And I'm sitting here with a green giant. Well, I've got a decision to make, don't I? Am I going to live a life based on spiritual principles? Or am I just going to go on the bitter end with this green giant? Right? So I stood there for a second. I thought, well, hmm. what would you do? Right? I went back and I got the Orida. Here was my thinking. 
if it hadn't been God, who would know the difference? But if it had been God, I followed directions. You may think that's a crazy story, but it's my story. You need to go get a story. And you practice, practice, practice. Because it says we're going to pay in all kinds of absurd ways for these things that we think are a message from the Creator. Ever gone to one of those AA dances, looked across the room, fallen in love instantly and said, it's a God thing. <laughs> you know? You will sure learn how to separate out hormones and God. You know? <laughs> They're going to pay in absurd ways. You might even marry them. You know? Or do all that. But we gotta do it. You gotta act on this thing because it needs to be finely tuned. It got all screwed up. This message giver got all screwed up and it's being replaced and fixed and changed and the garbage is getting out of the way so that you will learn how to know intuitively to handle certain situations in the past that used to baffle me. And I do today. I get messages. Well, why do we do all this stuff? The whole purpose of doing all this stuff is so I can sit down one-on-one with another alcoholic. That's the whole purpose is to carry this message to other alcoholics. And doing the 11 that come before, prepare us to go do that. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be of service before there. I am totally into vacuum the floors, make coffee, pick up ashtrays. You know, sponsees that like sit around on their butts, I would kick them in the butt. You get up and you get moving. New people, the way to be a part of something is to get in there and be a part of it. Story about the sheep in a snowstorm. Those of you ranchers, farmers, whatever, know about that sheep and a snowstorm all huddled together. Boom, boom, boom. Tight in a circle. When this horrible storm ends the next day or 36 hours later, if you look out on the periphery, the ones that were out on the outside of the, of the crowd are dead. Okay? They're hanging out by themselves. They're dead. The way to get in there, I'm sorry, you're uncomfortable at meetings and things don't feel good. Well, you know what? The way to become a part of that is to go in there clean out the ashtrays, make coffee, clean up after the meeting, and do all that stuff and start participating. Go to group conscious. Have a home group. My home group is critical. We just did a group inventory. This horrible thing that happened on September 11th, I was devastated. Devastated. As many of us were. I called my sponsor. And we talked. And I said, I know we're supposed to be beers. You know, he had to teach me that, you know, God removed my fear and direct my attention what you'd have me be. I used to say, thought it said what you'd have me do. I said, so I know there's beers and doers, and I'm a doer, and I want to go do something. You know, I just I can't sit here. It's just making me crazy. So we talked quite a bit, and then some emails started going around. Some of you may have received from Bill W. during World War II and also during the Cuban crisis. And one of the things Bill W. said during the Cuban crisis was, who better than us is prepared to carry the message? To other people, not just necessarily alcoholics, that have faced fear, that understand the process for looking at fear and for asking for that to be removed, and to be of service to others. We were so properly placed. My friends, it was so neat because we could minister to other people. We have a lot to do here, and we have a lot of people that are sick, and that's our job to go and to minister to them. We are uniquely prepared to do that. If you're a real alcoholic and you have found your solution here and had an experience in these steps, you are uniquely qualified to sit with another alcoholic when a family member can't, priest can't, doctor can't, nobody. Because when we sit down and talk about, I'm meant to be home by 7, they understand when nobody else does. One other thing. It's going to take me back a ways. I talked about sponsorship the other day. If you have a sponsor to whom you cannot tell your deepest, darkest secret, you get rid of them right now and get another because your life depends on it. 
the one thing I didn't say yesterday, because that thing is the thing that sits here. Those are the things that separate us from the guy who keeps us from drinking. Here's my insanity, here's the drink, and here's the creator. And i got to make sure that that's in the proper place. I've had a ball with you guys. Have we had fun? Did we? All right, thank you for having me here. And uh, come see us in Denver. Come see me at my home group. We just have a ball. And uh, take good care. God bless.